Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. And we're live now for another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm so happy uh, today to have again with us Dr. Sarita Lyons. Uh, Dr. Lyons is no stranger to the podcast she's been on before. And she is she has a JD and a PhD. I'm always impressed that <laughs> she has both of those. Welcome back, Dr. Lyons. Thank you. Thank you. So great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, well, thank you for accepting. I'm excited to have you. Like I said, uh, for those who didn't hear you uh, before on the podcast, can you just give a little bit of background about yourself? Okay, sure. Um, well, I'm Sarita Lyons. I am the wife of Mark Lyons. I have four small children that range in age from nine to 13. Um, I'm here from Philadelphia. I have a PhD in clinical and forensic psychology. I got from Drexel University and I got my law degree from Villanova University School of Law. I'm in private practice here as a clinician. I see individuals for um, a variety of counseling needs, everything from severe psychopathology to just kind of your garden variety. People need help with life and living. Um, What else? I'm the women's ministry leader at Epiphany Fellowship Church. So I have a passion for women and growing strong, biblically sound women who will influence this world uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I like to cook, play Scrabble, travel, read, what? Um, all kinds of great stuff. So <laughs> that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. That's awesome. So today we're going to be talking about a very hot topic, the church yes. and sex. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, you, I think you said it, you summed it up well before we hit live. What did you say about it? Right, right. The thing about talking about church and sex is that everybody wants to talk about it, but nobody wants to talk about it. And what I mean by that is people are hungry for truth, for information, for leadership, for guidance around sex, because it is a huge part of our lives and the culture. And there is a void oftentimes with the church speaking to these issues. But it's something that's difficult to talk about just based on our own upbringing and um, experiences. And so that people are looking for someone outside of themselves to initiate. So it's great that someone like you is starting this conversation or rather continuing the conversation, because I think there has been some growth. We're on a better trajectory toward honesty, transparency, and biblical truth around this topic, but we have lots more work to do. Yes, I, I think you're, you're dead on uh, as it relates to the need for this conversation to be pushed to the forefront um, in in the church. Uh, one of Some of the things that I've been hearing um, from my young professional friends, um, just people in general about the church and their critique of the church is there seems to be a double standard around sex in the church for men and women. Uh, in the oh, they don't do it so much now, but in the in the uh, old school black church days, if if a girl was pregnant, she had to be set down, and sometimes yeah. it seemed like. 
maybe the drummer or somebody else that impregnated her that was in in a place <laughs> of open ministry they they still got to stand up and i mean not stand up they still got to uh, be in ministry and so that created those kinds of responses to sex um created kind of a um bad taste in the mouth of many people in the church or, and especially young people around sex and the church. How do we address the double standards that have been present? Because I, I've seen it, they have been there. And how do we um, move forward in a biblical way? Yeah, so I think number one, we have to just be honest and acknowledge that there are double standards. Say that I think that the double standards are to the church, but they are uh, a tentacle of really the society's double standard view toward men and women in general. And so when the society has a disparate view of women around sex and sexuality, when compared to men, that then bleeds into the family. And so you see oftentimes boys being raised differently from girls around sex and sexuality. Um, of course, we're generalizing, but often messages around sex for boys are kind of like, you know, oh, you're going to kill them, you know, get them slugger. I mean, that's not like an, a culturally appropriate term, but you get what I'm saying, that boys are often encouraged to be um but at least to like girls. And you don't often hear people having conversations with girls about who they like and how they navigate their emotional life that then also can become a part of their sexual life. Um, and then those types of dynamics end up bleeding into the church. So if girls are always given messages around, you know, keep your skirt down, but boys aren't told to keep their pants pulled up. If girls are talked about sexuality with regard to, you know, keep your legs closed and boys are told just use a condom, then that kind of think thinking comes into the house of God. And so obviously is if um, young people or adults are caught in sexual sin, if a pregnancy results from that, then the woman tends to bear the weight and the burden and the responsibility of that sin because we tend to care about the sins that are visual typical though. I mean, so we'll talk about sex, drugs, um, some of those overt visual sins in the church often historically hasn't done a great job of having a balance dealing with the invisible sins because they all stem from issues of the heart, right? And so we do, we see boys having a more lenient response from the church than often the girls because the, the church has often borne the shame. It felt like so and projected the shame of the girl instead of really practicing truth and grace. Um, your example in a way is kind of nice because you're talking about someone in the choir and a drummer, but let's not forget that not all of our men of God, but a lot of the sexual um, um, sin that has occurred in the church has been with the leadership. We have a pattern of sexual inappropriateness and sin with the people who are the pastors and the leaders and the elders and the ministers or deacons. And there is no biblical church discipline and support for people around that. Then the women are the ones often told to leave the church. The women are the ones that are made to seem like they are the problem. Um, the temptresses, you know, the adulterous woman. Uh, and it's almost like boys will be boys. Um, and even if we know it's wrong, we just don't deal with it in a very forceful way because we hate sin, hate what God hates, love what God loves. And then we just don't care for people well when they sin anyway. Mm -hmm. And it brings a certain amount. It increases the shame 
uh, for many women because many women in the church have already dealt with abuse. Um, so that perpetuates the shame. So how, how, how do we care for, um, people? Is it, do, are men even able to care for, for women in that regard? And I'm jumping ahead of myself in, in that question, but because, um, in a lot of, um, church traditions, you know, men, there's only male leadership. Does only male leadership perpetuate the narrative of shame for women? Um, am I making sense with my question? Sure. So I think that the narrow view oftentimes of what leadership can and should look like in the church. So if we're talking about pastors and elders, then obviously if you're going to follow the Bible, then those individuals um, are going to be men and should be men. However, I think women and encouraged to take on leadership roles in the church so that they also have a voice and can fulfill their Titus II mandate to teach the younger women in a variety of ways and to counsel and to do so many of the other church duties that um, are necessary. I, I wouldn't say that men cannot minister to women around issues of sex and sexuality and rape. However, I just think that it's better when you have a woman that does it or if a male is supported in doing it. Uh, I think the statistics say one in 33 men goes to or endure some kind of sexual trauma where the ratio is one in six men, uh, one in six women are, the, the, the fraction is one in six women are actually sexually assaulted. So right there, you just see the difference in terms of the gender that is more vulnerable to sexual abuse. And you really do, no one knows a woman like a woman. It really is important to have people who kind of can walk in your shoes, who may have experienced similar things that you've experienced, talk about some of the trauma that they've gone through with you. I think that the church and many churches are doing a great job about it. Now I get the majority of the referrals for even my practice through the church. So pastors are acknowledging the fact that there is a limit with how far they can do some of the work, even biblical work with their parishioners and their congregants. So they are sending them out. We need to empower and use the resources within the church. We have a lot of people in the church that are trained and well-equipped to deal with this. Um, but speaking of training, I will say that whether you are a man or a woman, not everyone should be touching this issue of sexual trauma with people in the church. Everyone is not equipped or able to effectively walk with someone through some of these painful experiences. And so we just want to be very wise about who we assign and task to do that sacred work. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point because I think uh, people sometimes think in, in church leadership of any capacity, they have to know it all. And so that's right. Uh, I think one of the good things about one of the, the things about being a good leader is knowing your limitations and Absolutely. being able to say, this is outside of my limitations. Let me pass this on to someone else. Um, yeah. How um, do we effectively um, help people that have experienced sexual trauma? Uh, because I, ha I know different people who have been um, raped. I know women who've been raped by women and men. And so for them, it's very difficult to see 
on both sides, there's a, you know, with different genders, there's, you know, the sometimes the, the thing we assume is if somebody's been molested, they've been molested by the opposite sex when it's a woman. But there are plenty of cases where men and women have been molested by, by women. How do we help navigate when people have that type of trauma? Sure. Um, I think there are a couple things, and you're talking specifically in the church, correct? Mm-hmm. One, I think the idea of sex and sexuality needs to be a part of the life of the church, the preaching, the teaching, the sermons, um, even sexual trauma, meaning when you can fit it in as it fits, that, that this topic in general isn't something that should just be saved for like a small group um, in terms of its relevance and discussion, because we need to know that the church needs to know that this is an important issue to God. And if it's an important issue to God, it's an important issue to us. Um, I think that we can warn if we are unable and not equipped in our personal churches to manage that sort of thing, we should develop great relationships with um, godly clinicians, even outside of the walls of our church and have a a systematic referral system where even uh, lay people and leaders may get trained on how to deal with even a response to rape or sexual trauma. And with regard to that response, um, number one being to believe them, I think we, we harm more people by questioning their experience or making them feel as if it wasn't that bad or as if there is a different weight between someone who was sexually molested versus someone who's raped, um, which further creates shame. Lots of incest, even a part of the sexual trauma that people have experienced. So I just think if churches are really going to deal with this and deal with it right, we need to not be running around like a chicken with our head cut off when someone comes to our doors um, or makes a call with this. We should be you know what I mean, with all of these systems in place, um, kind of a 911 um, crisis response uh, system within the church to deal with these sorts of things. Um, So, and believe the person. I also think that we can just continue to do training um, for even adolescents. We think of this oftentimes as um, an adult issue, but there are so many children who are victims of sexual abuse. So um, hearing about churches who have workshops on good touch, versus bad touch, empowering parents um, to have a very unhealthy and inappropriate response to their children talking about some of these issues because the parents themselves are victims of sexual assault and they never got their healing and worked through their own trauma. And so to have a child share something like that with a parent can be very re-traumatizing for a parent, which then to the child. So I just think that we need to be on all fronts, um, uh, a community support. We need to support children. We need to support women. We need to support men. I think small groups are a great place. I know at Epiphany Fellowship, we just did 10 weeks worth of going through the book, Sexual Sanity. Now that entire book isn't about sexual abuse and rape, but there were definitely areas in the book that touched on people's family of origin and trauma and incest and molestation and rape and all those sorts of things. And even the trauma of 
because sexual abuse is even being shown pornography at a very early age. And we often don't think about, you know, if your uncle gives you a magazine or lets you watch pornography or a parent, a woman, that that is also a trauma that the child has experienced that has lasting effects, we know, with regard to the rates of pornography addiction, even in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the, I think that's very important and it, it leads me to my next question. What are the ways and what are the damaging ways that we talk about sex in the church that kind of feeds this? Yeah. Well, I think one of the most damaging ways is uh, no talking. So the greatest or the greatest miseducation is no education, just not acknowledging um, Treating sex as something shameful and dirty, it's very hush-hush, versus affirming the beauty and power and gift of sex um, that has been created and ordained by God. Um, And the fact that sex is a real thing with real um, pleasure involved. You know, I think about sex being created for procreation, uh, pleasure, and protection in the confines of marriage. But just if if a person is not having sex in the confines of marriage, that doesn't mean it's absent of pleasure. And so we need to be able to talk through some of those issues. And oftentimes we don't talk about sex being pleasurable and good. And even when we get to like the Song of Solomon, we're like, he, 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 everything is a joke in the esteem in which God created it. point is when we do, if we do talk about it, it's often talked about in a very demeaning, um, comedic way. And it's a very serious issue. So the um, so Victorian in the sense of sexuality in the church that we equate God's holiness with uh, frigidity if I can say that, and, and being able to help people be really informed about it. I think about sex like this, especially, you know, when you think about talking to singles and we push abstinence, abstinence. We don't really talk about the fact that singles are struggling with real feelings that sex often satisfies. So just because you don't have a license for it doesn't mean you don't gain the benefits from it, even if the long-term spiritual and physical benefits can be very damaging. So I think, you know, if I have I have a Percocet pill that hasn't been prescribed by a doctor. If I take it, I'll still get high, right? And so if you have sex and you don't have the authority um, to have sex because you're not married, that doesn't mean you aren't experiencing the benefits and pleasures of sex. And so, you know, sex in all of those ways so that we represent laying down our sexual desire or our sexual activity rather, as something we do in service to God. It's a, it's an act of worship. I often hear people talk about, well, if God doesn't want me to have sex at this season of my life, why doesn't he just take the feeling from me? Why doesn't he just remove my sexual desires? But if God removed our sexual desires, what would we be sacrificing? Of uh, the way we even demonstrate our love toward God, that's something that we do want to to do something we want to experience we are mortifying for a season if we are called to get married later because we don't have the authority to do it we can do it but we don't have the authority to do it um thing that the church does that can be very damaging is the discussions we have around modesty um almost like the word modesty was created female and woman uh so we talk about one modesty in terms of a woman's 
dress and appearance, but we don't talk about modesty broadly in terms of speech and behavior. And we, if, and we rarely talk about modesty at all as it pertains to men. And so women often in the church have been made to feel like we are the gatekeepers of another man's self-control. And so dress this way so that you don't tempt your brother. Well, there is wisdom and truth in that, but we often aren't teaching brothers to operate in self-control based on their love for God. We have this kind of, um, that somehow men just are out of control. They, they are going to want to have sex and women's responsibility is to kind of say no and keep everything in check. Um, I think we talk about sex in damaging ways that honestly are culturally acceptable, but they tend to rub me the wrong way. So I don't know how other people feel, but I think that the church sometimes in, in line with kind of the jokingness can use cultural vernacular about sex that eating to women. So think about this. If a pastor or someone is teaching about sex, think about the language we use for sex in this culture. It's smash, tap, bang. It's like all rape language. And so <laughs> to describe sex in very aggressive, brutalizing ways, and that be a cultural norm, and that that is actually even the language in the pulpit, I think that can be very damaging. I mean, and women say it too, of course. I'm not saying only men say it, but I think we should think about why do we say smash? What is that a picture of? Especially is supposed to be something so beautiful and joyous and a gift from God. Um, those are some of the things that kind of come to mind right right there. <laughs> and when we talk about uh, just, you mentioned modesty and the whole idea of purity culture, especially within youth groups, um, how does that, uh, because one of the things one of my friends did that was a youth pastor, he said, instead of talking about purity in one general way in sex and, okay, let's take Every take the everybody take the purity pledge that they're going to be a virgin till they get married. He changed the purity to purity 360, which means it encompasses every area of your life, not just your sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I think that That's language right. about purity has really damaged so many people because people think, well, if I'm a virgin, then I'm holier or I'm better than the next person. And then those who aren't feel that they they aren't you know come they they don't they don't meet up to um the standard but then you have those who have been assaulted and that was taken away from them at an early age mm -hmm. so they they can't say that they have their virginity how does all that play a part together well yeah i think that we've upheld our virginity it's above every or well, sex in general is this huge taboo topic in the church. And so when you think about even homosexuality, we talk about homosexuality like it is the sin um, that is above all sins. And that is the one we focus on. And we don't deal with all of the other sins that are just as uh, deserving of death, <laughs> according to God and his holiness. Um, and we also don't distinguish if I can say this between homosexuality and people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, because there are a lot of believers who struggle with same-sex attraction who have not adopted an identity of homosexuality as either gay or lesbian or bisexual, but they have this real struggle and war it within. And we kind of 
together, not minister or educate well on those topics and leave a whole segment of the people of God out of a, play, a plan for restoration and hope, which I think is really um, damaging. And then, you know, back to your, your comment about uh, purity, we do elevate oftentimes the idea of being a virgin above all things. But I mean, we have a lot of like mean, nasty, selfish, and so, you know, if you're still like that isn't that being a virgin doesn't make you more holy than someone else. And having had sex or an abortion or all the other things that often come from sexual sin doesn't mean that you have somehow um, ex ex excluded yourself from the grace of God and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And so I think we just need to preach on sin. And I think we need to preach on redemption. And I think we need to teach people how God can keep them. We talk about sex in terms of all the negative consequences, STDs, pregnancy, you know, nobody's gonna want you. You're like damaged goods. We, we have all of that very negative, unhelpful narrative, but we don't talk about how abstinence or purity, even in the sexual context is about um, God's loving protection of you, of God's plan that he wants us to cooperate with for his ultimate glory. And yes, purity as the term modesty was used is more comprehensive than just our sexuality. Um, when I was studying the topic of purity, the root word actually means to be single-minded. Person is operating in purity. They are sold out single-minded for God and the things of God. So to be impure, as James talks about being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, impurity is like with God, with the world, and constantly going back and forth. But purity is to be focused, right? I love that word, to be focused and committed um, and steadfast and pursuing a life that holistically God can squeeze all of glory for himself out of you with. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to uh, to define it. And I think it, it's so comprehensive in, in that definition that helps kind of filter out all the other uh, ways that we have defined it in the past. Uh, when we talk about sexuality, yeah. a lot of times when we talk about the language of, you know, saying this is protection, um, it helps kind of change how we view even challenging someone's view on a, their sexuality, maybe, whether it homosexuality, just uh, promiscuity, um, outside of what we would say is God's ordained uh, means for a sexuality. We, say, we tend to say, well, if you challenge one person's view, you're not being loving. And the way we've defined loving um, has been, interesting to me the redefinition of love because in a lot of times love means a general acceptance of a person um without challenge it seems to be a newer definition of love how has culture shifted on this definition i think that the church has just been gravely influenced by the world oftentimes more than having influence on the world i mean if you just start with god that God had to agree or accept all of our sin in order to love us, but he loves us and he also condemns um, sin. And his, his way is pure and holy and everything that is antithetical to his way 
is evil and wrong. Yet God is a God of love. And in the scripture, when God talks about he disciplines those he loves, God is a loving father with a corrective hand, with a hand that trains and guides in his way. Um, I just think, one, the church has gotten kind of scared to be honest, to really take a stand. We have grown into a more compromising culture. Um, today is permissibility, don't judge me, only God can judge me, which that is quite dangerous because woe to, is it for him to fall into the hands of, a, of an angry God? But, and so we have just dropped the mantle because we felt all of this pressure from society to conform. Um, why we have yielded to the pressure to conform and call love acceptance and define it as it's really it's not just acceptance because when you tell people I can love you and still not agree with you I can love you and still not agree with your lifestyle you still get called homophobic you know you still are considered to be someone who's a hate monger but Christians just conversations with agreement <laughs> like nobody wants to be the bad guy uh, nobody wants to be the unapologetic disciple of Jesus Christ who just flat-footed says if I stand alone I'm not alone because I'm with God and so we've just gotten a little weak in that area as a church and we've equated boldness and being an uncompromising Christian with somehow being rude and mean and hurtful. And we just have to change the narrative back to what the Bible says and not let people define us or interpret our hearts based on us not going along with their agenda and program. So to the basics, it's really simple. You know, sometimes I think people wish that there was this like new, brilliant way to dialogue about this topic. And it's really as simple as just do what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, do the word of God. And part of, of the inability to do really does stem from a lack of knowledge, right? And so we can't really do what we don't know. And we don't know because we are not studying. So we have a lot of zeal without knowledge, but there is an intellectual part of your faith. Love the Lord your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so if, if the church is not teaching, if, we're, if there's not a didactic component <laughs> to the growth and maturation of the people of God, we are, you know, shouters and we are worshipers, but we have, we lack really uh, intimacy with God that is based on knowledge. And so we are unable to contend for the faith. We are unable to really speak against the cultural norms because we just don't know God's word. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's so important for you to speak on this topic uh, for the question I'm about to ask because you're a therapist uh, counselor and so you know how to speak to people in ways that won't won't increase their trauma. And so for some, I've heard a lot of conversations by the lack of acceptance or the lack of using accepting language increases trauma for the individual who's already experiencing things because of sexual identity. Is that is that true? Is there some truth to that? How we speak truth? Uh, to power in, in, in relationship to things that we don't agree with about people's lifestyle, that we increase trauma when we say things or when we quote unquote tell the truth that creates a more of a 
stereotyping their minds if they're already depressed and suicidal about things that they feel like they can't control? Uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, our speech is supposed to be seasoned with salt. We're supposed to walk in wisdom and being bold and uncompromising doesn't mean being a jerk. Right. <laughs> like so that they I don't think of that. I just think of being clear. Minded, being focused. And I think the majority of the people who end up really being blessed and having an encounter with Christ um, around those very sensitive issues happen in the context of relationship. And so if you think God wants you to stand on the street corner and just yell out in a bullhorn, all the gays and lesbians are going to hell, um, I think we need to revisit the scripture and how Jesus really did engage people and walk with people and love people. Um, experience. I remember I was working at a psychiatric hospital and there was um, an individual there who self-identified as a gay man but we just really built a relationship and I didn't let his sexuality limit my ability to have lunch with him and talk with him and share my faith, um, but also not abuse him with a truth that he wasn't even able to digest based on one, not even being sure if he was saved, right? That's the other thing. We often try to clean fish we haven't even caught. Um, but just to walk with him. Um, and I just remember one of the things that he said to me was, I had never met who I thought I could like, you know, like just never met a Christian that I thought I could like. And of course, I would like to be able to say that, oh, you know, he changed his whole life around. But I believe one plants, one waters, God gives the increase. And so we need to treat people, one, the way we would want to be treated if we were struggling and in sin. We need to treat people with sensitivity. But sensitivity doesn't mean we sacrifice truth. Um, and sometimes the truth um, th is best learned and displayed by just how we engage people, as I said earlier, on a relational level and praying to God for wisdom an opportunity to maybe slip something in or ask them about their faith. Because see, I'd much rather one Christ and accept him and understand who he is as savior and Lord of their lives and, the, and help them understand God's redemptive story before I, I laser being focused on some area of sin in their life. I just personally don't think that's effective. Um, from even the counseling arena, however, is that truth is really just a very powerful thing and truth and love is very powerful. And people um, want people to love them enough sometimes to say uncomfortable things. Um, the church oftentimes says nothing to people, does not walk with people at all. Um, and then we kind of talk about everybody behind their back, you know, and we are less evangelistic in our approach to people who are in sin. So I just, you know, and I think see them like I see myself. I am someone who is desperate for the love and grace of Jesus Christ. I am someone who had a first class pass to the lake of fire, but for God, and that is who my brothers and sisters are. I am someone who, though I am redeemed and filled with the Holy Ghost, struggle with sin. I am someone who constantly has to repent and constantly fails and keeps getting back up. And so, so too are other people. Um, I just think that we need to have an approach that best reflects who Jesus Christ is and not that boldness and honesty means rudeness.
Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important, like you said, when we were talking about, you know, issues of sexuality, whether people identify as uh, lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgender, that we see where they what they feel about the word of God and have they even accepted Christ before we laser in on those issues or what they feel about the Bible. Cause sometimes we're trying to point people to the scripture when they haven't even, they haven't even determined that they believe that the scripture is the inerrant word of God. Absolutely. So if I say, yes. this is what the Bible says about X. Well, I don't even believe about what the Bible says about a through, through Z. I don't believe any. So, That's right. Why are you pointing me there? So you have to have the conversation. You have to prove first that the Bible is inerrant. Then you can start talking about what the Bible says about particular issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so much work to build up to that. There has to be, okay, we agreed that this is authoritative. We also believe this is the way we should interpret what we feel is authoritative, even to get to that point. And I think people sometimes, like you said, are trying to have conversations about things without even seeing where people stand on the word. And I just want to drop this in here too, that there are, I, I get a lot of calls from parents in my practice who are pulling their hair out and very scared when they have a child who, because, you know, uh, people are talking about their sexuality being fluid or there's no gender and all those sorts of things, or I'm gay or I'm bisexual or there are no binary terms, you know, and parents are like, what? Oh, my goodness. You know, everybody, you know, people want to throw oil, lay hands. They want to send them to me every day of the week, you know, make <laughs> them not be gay. <laughs> and um, I also think the church needs to support parents. Um, who are struggling in that area, how to walk with their children, how to love their children, how to, a lot of times parents are freaking out around walking with their children through sexual issues because they are selfishly allowing that child's sin issue to negatively reflect on them. So it's sometimes what I've discovered, it's not even about you really about their life, but there's this deep shame and embarrassment for the parent which is a blinding force in a parent unconditionally loving their child and seeking to understand and getting help if help is needed. Um, a lot of the sexual abuse, a lot of the sexual identity um, confusion or um, attraction or resolution even is often rooted in sexual abuse. And so sometimes um, what I found, I can say confidently in my private practice that every single person counseled that had some um, gender confusion or struggle in their sexual identity, 100% of them had sexual trauma as younger children. Being able to, one, walk people through how to heal from trauma without focusing on their sexual identity um, is a huge part of the freedom and relief that people need to even have an open heart and mind to exploring, hey, how did I get here? How did I start speaking this language of same-sex attraction? Where did that come from? Why am I repulsed by maybe another um, gender? Why do I feel more comfortable with this gender? And what you find is oftentimes it has nothing really to do with sex as much as it has to do with safety. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. I know that there's 
in some ways the the trauma that people experience has has a big part in view how uh, they deal sexually. But then there's the other component. I've heard the flip side where people will say, well, I didn't experience any trauma go- growing up, but I'm still having this uh, attraction um, to same sex. So then they feel kind of like, well, I'm boxed in because you think that I have had somebody bother me as a young person. Um, how do we minister in that area? Because I, I he, I've heard sermons where it oh, almost uh, that you were bothered as a child, and yes. that further creates damage because it's like you're you're perpetuating a false narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and how about just sexually assaulted, right? As a child, um, well, that's a common a common argument, and it's real because not everyone who uh, considers themselves gay or lesbian or bisexual has had sexual abuse. That's absolutely a good point. If you're thinking logically, B doesn't equal C for me, right? Um, So what I say just from from a biblical standpoint is the word of God is clear that all have been born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And so from the moment sin entered the world, everything was broken, right? Everything was destroyed on the chromosomal level on the brain level, on the thought level, on the physicality level, all nature still groans, right, because of sin. And so our various proclivities to sin are going to show up in different ways. And so if I have a proclivity to steal, if I have a proclivity to lie, or someone else has a proclivity to have same-sex attraction, all of those things, if they don't glorify God and are against God's will and holiness, have to be crucified. You know, so I don't get to say, I don't know what it is. I just like to lie. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was just I was just born that way. And guess what? You know, Lady Gaga had that song, Born This Way, and she ain't never lied. I mean, she might not have known what she was talking about, but she's right. We were born this way. We were born messed up. We were born blind. We were born aliens and enemies of God. And the very sin and flesh that courses through our spiritual and physical life, lust against the spirit. And so whether or not there was something that happened to you because of someone else's sin, something happened to all of creation as a result of original sin. And that is really where we, where the gospel comes in as the powerful redemptive force to make all things new. Christ is what makes all things new. Christ is what helps us to control our desires. Christ is what causes us to lay things down that our flesh hungers and lusts for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, a, it's, it's so interesting, especially around this topic of sex and sexuality, because people want to know where you stand on that issue uh, before they engage you in any other issue as it relates to scripture. And they will actually, if you say, I take a stand, Will, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh and that's that's my stance. Then there's you get thrown into a conservative box, and you are intolerant. Mm-hmm. You are a bigot, uh, homophobic. If you take that stand, and then they don't want to hear anything you say about scripture, uh, because they they have already labeled you. And mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting because it's it's because you're labeled intolerant but your views are not tolerated in a sense. So I think there's kind of an interesting way in which we engage. And I think more has to, more conversation has to happen about when we talk about sexuality, because there's a lot of 
kind of talk about sexuality and true scholarship and only there's no real scholarship that backs up a a a, a, a conservative view on these passages and so it's it's almost i hear a lot of language uh on on both sides that are unhealthy because it presents a very narrow view of looking at scholarship and if if you have some letters behind your name and you're more progressive on this issue then you could say well this is what scholarship says without realizing that there's a whole bunch of people who have letters behind their name on the opposite spectrum that are arguing for a different view so if we if we're true on 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 what we're if we're going to be truly how do, how do i want to say this tolerant we have to be able to come to the table with people we don't agree with if you're more progressive you have to be able to come to the table with somebody who's very conservative on this issue and usually are biblical inerrantists and would be very strict and exclusivist on on the identity i mean on the exclusivity of christ you know all of those come together you have to come to the table and say okay i'm not going to throw you away or throw everything you say about scripture away because you believe that marriage is between one man and one woman it would be inconsistent with your quote-unquote values of tolerance to do that um <laughs> and i yeah, think that's yeah. something we have to we have to be fair on if you're going to be progressive especially on this issue you can't throw those who you would consider super conservative or old school away on the basis of this because they're not quote unquote scholarly because there are a lot of scholars we've had them on this podcast and i know many more who would who would be against a more uh quote unquote progressive way sure, sure. yeah and i mean yeah, i think I mean, that, I think that at the end of the day, very simplistic and uh, rudimentary, but I I want to be in the Bible box, right? And I think that we have all of these <laughs> labels and groups that we are kind of pressured and forced to neatly fit in. Are you reformed? Are you, you know, all this sort of stuff. And my desire for my personal life and how I raise my children and engage my husband and, and minister to people and women um, is really what does the Bible say? And I, I think everybody that is doing that says the same thing. But I want the word of God to inform me, not the, not the group that I the religious group that I've aligned myself with. And everybody has to agree in this one way for us to really stick together. Um, I do think we need to be open and willing to talk to people who have fundamental um, disagreements with us theologically, relationally, socially, educationally, um, so that we can, one, hear other perspectives. I don't even think you grow as a Christian and even are equipped to, to defend your faith um, if you aren't being challenged by nuances and theological concepts that you have not adopted as your own. Sometimes you hear information and you're praying about it and it forces you to research and study some more and you change your position. Sometimes it teaches you how to stand firm and fight and be more well-equipped. And other times I think you decide that I just don't know. And there are some things that are in the wisdom and mind of God that I just can't fully conclude I get it but I'm going to trust the revelation that I've received from the Holy Spirit as I've done my due diligence to properly interpret scripture. 
um, to be faithful to the text, right? Um, and to live, you know, single-mindedly before the Lord to, to walk this thing out. Um, yeah, and, and then also think, you know, ultimately, how does God get the glory? I think that when we um, hard-nosed in, in these different camps, it almost becomes like religious gymna gymnastics, and we've really forgotten God. I mean, the theologians and the scholars become the stars of the theological discourse, and Jesus Christ is not the star. So mm -hmm. anytime we're moving into that domain, I'm kind of like red flags. Anyway, you know, where is Jesus in all of this? So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I'm used to definitely trying to uh, fit in the Bible box uh, that, that often puts <laughs> me in the exclusivist, more uh, conservative uh, space, uh, which is, is a, a, a difficult space for us to navigate at this time because uh, people have lumped uh, the race issue and the sexuality issue in the same box. Um, and so it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to be like, well, then, you know, people on the more right will call you uh, liberal because you care about social justice issues. And mm -hmm. the people on, on the more left will call you conservative because you, you might have it, it, because I have a more conservative view as it relates to sexuality. So you kind of don't fit, especially as an African-American, in the context where you you believe that the Bible is an errant, inspired, authoritative, and sufficient, uh, but then you you believe that the Bible is is sufficient because it talks about justice issues <laughs> right. uh, that we uh, sometimes act like is not there for some people on the that are more conservative. Yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, but I think that those I think that tension and those kind of people crossing lines. Um, in some ways being very aligned with people. And then other times it's like, what you're talking about, Willis, with a lot of stuff is helpful for growth even within the church. For instance, if some of our white evangelical friends are very against, you know, pro-life, against abortion, pro-marriages um, uh, between a man and a woman, and we have all these fundamental issues around how God defines life and love, then it's great to be aligned with that theological thought. So then we can also say, but hey, if we care about the unborn child, why don't we care about the black dead body laying in the street? Because exactly. isn't the same God overall and lover of all? Isn't the unborn child created the Imago Day? Isn't the black boy that just got gunned down? Isn't that Imago Day? And so really, I think that is healthy. And I think it's like, okay, so this person um, believes that marriage is between a man and a woman, but now we're also then opening up the opportunity to deal with the gender politics, the race politics that are plaguing our church and keeps people out of their neat comfort zones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it causes you always to live in the tension. And uh, some people aren't comfortable with that gray and that tension of, of God doesn't fit in our neat kind of boxes of our our left and right that we want him to uh absolutely across um yep. so is, what what books would you recommend for those who are wrestling with this issue whether it is sexuality mm -hmm. uh, whether it is issues of uh rape and molestation pastors who are trying to figure out um, how can they get better equipped? What resources and books? And just this conversation around sex in general, how, how, what resources would you recommend? 
Um, well, one of the ones that I think is really good that we just used is sexual sanity. And they have a they have one for men, sexual sanity for men and sexual sanity for women. I think just as a great starting point to go to the Harvest USA website, I think it's harvestusa.org, but it's a Christian organization whose sole purpose and mission is to minister to and provide a healing community for people who struggle with any kind of sex, sexual issues. So whether it's pornography addiction, whether it's um, men and women who are struggling with um, adultery um, in, a, in the context of a marriage, whether it's um, some kind of homosexuality issue, they are a very comprehensive jumping off point. And then they have a ton of resources that can point people in um, various directions. I can't think of the title of the book right now. It may be even Homosexuality and the Church, but there's this great book, um, Healthy Ways for Christians to not only minister to people around um, gender issues and sexuality issues, but it really gives people an apologetic around sex and homosexuality, um, talking about the gay theology and how we can develop our understanding of what the Bible says to counteract um, the Bible being misused to justify um, gay and lesbian lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um and you already, how how can people get in contact with you? What is your social media handle? How can they get in contact with you? Um, your sure. practice and all of that. Okay, so with regard to my private practice, and, and you can get in touch with me in general through my website, which is drseritalliance.com. My Instagram and Twitter handle is drseritalliance, so it's pretty consistent. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Lyons. I really appreciate having you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. Great job, Lisa. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jude 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store Google Play or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.